Well, welcome to Current Yield, the Grants Interest Rate Observer Podcast. I'm Jim Grant, and with me, as always, Eric Whitehead at the controls and the uh, great editor of uh, Deputy Editor of Grants, uh, Evan Lorenz. And uh, joining us today is our extremely special guest, Kevin Warsh. Kevin is um, needing no introduction. He ought not to get one, except he's going to get one. And uh, he might squirm because that's <laughs> that kind of introduction. Kevin, to begin with, was wearing a very, very nice Glenn plaid suit as he's now in uh, shirt sleeves. And uh, Kevin is Federal Reserve Governor uh, during the crisis. He was, um, is, where to begin? He teaches at uh, Stanford. He is a scholar at the Hoover Institution. He's an alumnus of uh, Harvard Law School and on and on. He has a resume that you could not have written if you had tried to write it. But most of all, Kevin, I'm going to say that the most impressive thing on this uh, listening CV is your affiliation with uh, Stan Druckenmiller, your partner of Stan's. Stan being the owner of perhaps the best indoor and outdoor compounding of money record extant, 30% a year uh, over the course of his career, which is that a racehorse that the vet would be called in to check because it seems so implausible. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so Kevin, welcome to us. And it's awfully nice of you to be here. Thank you very much, Jim. It's an honor to be here. I would say um, you highlighted the thing that has been probably the most formative, intellectually engaging experience of my career, which is working with Stan. He calls me his partner. I call him my boss. I'll let your listeners decide which of us <laughs> is lying about that. But it's been uh, it's been quite a treat, and we're on our eighth year. Well, it's fabulous. I think it's probably very good for both parties. Uh, Kevin, to begin with, uh, let's talk about your old day job. In particular, what you might think about the recent drama in the bond market. You know, the bond market uh, has had some bad days at the office and the 10-year yield, which had been, I think, as recently as the summer of 2016, yielding as little as one and three-eighths is now, uh, for all we know, it's, it's uh, three or what? Three and a quarter. All right, three and a quarter. So, what do you think? I'm waiting for some commentator to call this another tantrum. And what with yields moving up so swiftly, I would call it something else. I'd call it nature, gravity, the move as we know, in good economic theory and practice, 10-year Treasury yields should be equal to nominal GDP, and the Federal Reserve and other forecasters now appear to have been mugged by the recent data. So real economies growing at 3.5%, inflation, at least as measured by the government's growing at 2 So history and theory would say 10-year yields should be 55 or so. So I'm not that overwhelmed by a 20 basis point move this week. But I think nature takes it in that direction. No, um, this has been such a strange cycle in so many ways. One of the ways, and I think Evan and I were talking about this, at month uh, 116 or so of the expansion, um, the real federal funds rate that is adjusted for inflation, that federal funds rate is zero still. And, you know, we still have, when you look the world over, there are depression level interest rates juxtaposed with boom time asset prices. You don't see that every cycle. How does this work? Well, um, uh, there are some who are now calling this the greatest, most successful economic experiment. But of of course, because we still have negative real rates virtually everywhere in the world, it might be a premature uh, description of what's happened. If you had said to us in the darkest days, Jim, of the crisis, when we're rolling out new products, and truth be told, in the dark days of 2008, when the panic was among us, I was a radical myself and a big believer in QE1 and thought that the role of the Fed was to respond to panics. But of course, as you rightly point out, that was 10 years ago. If you had said to us in the crisis as we're rolling out new products, including quantitative easing, what would the world look like if in 2018, the Fed funds rate were at two, the balance sheet were nearly the size it was at its peak of $4 trillion, and you asked us, well, what's the underlying state of the economy? We would have said, well, the whole thing must not have worked. 
We must be back in very dark conditions economically. So the contrast that you state is something that we'd never taught in economic textbooks. And I should think we have virtually no experience with around the world. In a uh, conversation with Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes, Chairman Bernanke, I think in 2011, was it? I think it might have been 10. 2010, said uh, we could uh, raise rates in 15 minutes if we wanted to. But it's a funny thing about uh, raising rates. Uh, people do become accustomed to uh, rates you can scarcely see. They become accustomed to concessionary rates, even one might say free money. And the consequence of these ultra-low rates, I'm not sure we, have, we know them yet. What might you speculate in that respect? What have ultra-low interest rates wrought? We don't know, but I should think uh, it's easy to come to the conclusion that there could be massive misallocations of capital. I think it's reasonably easy to be conclude there are probably some misallocations of politics as well, with the central bank playing a rather extraordinary role here in a booming economic uh, recovery here in year 10. So negative real rates will hide a lot of sins, you know, throughout this economic recovery. One thing we haven't seen, for example, are bankruptcies um, and um, an ability to kick the can down the road. There might be a lot of zombie companies out there, but those companies aren't that much different, Jim, from our government. We've doubled our government's national debt and our government's paying less in interest expense than they were at debt levels that were half this. So, so it does cover up a lot of those things. I'd also just make one distinction, Jim. We, in the crisis, after fierce internal fighting at the Fed, um, we cut interest rates to zero. Then we grew our balance sheet. We started to say we were going to buy treasuries, buy mortgage-backed securities. And my recollection of what we agreed was on the exit, we would first shrink our balance sheet, the most extraordinary, the most emergency measures, and then raise rates. Those exit principles have no doubt changed several times between now and then, but I think uh, in error. So we have an emergency balance sheet today. And uh, my guess is that we are going to keep a very elevated uh, balance sheet on a quasi-permanent basis basis in the U.S., and that might well be copied around the world. You know, Kevin, when people talk about Fed policy and what the Fed is going to do, they speak as if the Fed were an independent agent, that it could act on its own volition, that would not be pushed around by mere market forces. But it was not so very long ago that the Fed was, in fact, recipient of the market's directions rather than directing the market. So who's in charge? So we would be far better off. I should say we. I'm a has-been, Jim. I left the Federal Reserve eight years ago, and perhaps I'm, I'm thinking a recent flirtation of having thought about, considered going back, so I should fix my pronouns. They, the Federal Reserve, would be far better off if they could see price signals in markets, incorporate that into their thinking. Do they understand that, that, that uh, interest rates are prices and prices ought to be discovered? Is that a thought that uh, is, uh, they, they have that thought? Do they? Well, there are, I think, 27,500 uh, employees at the Federal Reserve, uh -huh. so I wouldn't want to yeah, yeah. overly personalize it. The business we began in the crisis, either fairly or improperly or improperly, was setting prices at the long end of the market. And again, that was so that bid-ask spreads would clear. It wasn't so we'd be setting prices per se. So we'd be bringing liquidity back to the treasury market. We'd be bringing liquidity even to the mortgage market. But at some point when the economic recovery began in 2010 and 11, we went from being liquidity providers to, I'm afraid, price setters at the long end of the market. And the real problem with that, Jim, is what you suggest 
past, if we don't have market signals inside the stock market, in the credit markets, in commodity markets, to inform the central bank's judgment about what's around the corner, then you're stuck with relying on data that comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the Department of Commerce. And that data, I think it's fair to say, was last revisited in terms of our national accounts in the late 1970s. So to blind ourselves to the source of information strikes me as among the real dangers of being this invested as a central bank in asset prices. Yes. The, the Fed wasn't just setting prices in the long end of the curve. In that uh, 60 Minutes interview in 2010, Bernanke actually claimed credit for the Russell 2000s rally. He talked about how QE uh, through the portfolio balance channel caused other prices to rise. Since the Fed tried to stimulate the economy through higher you know, stock prices, higher other asset prices, what degree can they actually allow market signals to happen without undoing the work that they thought that they were doing, which is to engender you know, an economic rebound through you know, the wealth effect. Right. So I... Is there a... I mean, it's essentially the question of a put and whether they're willing to tolerate market action. Ben is a dear friend, and I will say in the darkest days of the crisis, I thought made some quite insightful depth of understanding judgments. But where I break bread and in some sense disagree with the prevailing ethos of he and others is when the regime shifts from one of panic to one of economic growth, even mild economic growth, when the regime shifts, monetary policy should shift along with it. And so as I have some friends on the right who are Hoover colleagues, frankly, who are quite critical of what we did in 08. And now I, I'm sure I have enemies on the right and left who think that monetary policy is working brilliantly. Asset prices are higher. Uh, and this is something that should be continued. I don't fundamentally believe in the modern central bank notion of trickle-down economics. So the portfolio balance channel in the darkest days of the crisis can put a floor under asset prices to give the economy a chance, but that was a decade ago. The portfolio balance channel, as you rightly say, is really the wealth effect, and the wealth effect works best for the wealthy. And if the central bank is in that business, then we, central bankers, are making distributional choices more akin to fiscal policy that's quite outside of our remit. I would rather us or the central bank be more focused on the real side of the economy, let the asset prices figure themselves out. You know, there are two sides to a pancake, two sides to a balance sheet. And uh, Peter Fisher, one of the, I think, the most one of the most thoughtful people who's ever passed through the portals of the Fed, uh, points out that um, you can't raise up asset prices without raising also the cost of liabilities. So uh, way back when interest rates were a little bit higher, you needed only so much money to generate so much interest income, right? And uh, say a million dollars would produce $50,000 a year with 5% rates. Well, if rates are 1%, you need many more millions. So in lifting up asset prices, lifting up bond prices and pressing down yields, the Fed not only expanded assets on the balance sheet, but also expanded the cost of those uh, funding liabilities. So was it not rather a wash? So maybe at best a wash. You and I walked through cobblestone streets downtown here on Wall Street to get here. And so those who we passed in these high, beautiful buildings, it's not a wash to them. They are better off. These asset prices are worth more than they would otherwise be if there weren't the perception of a Federal Reserve put, there weren't a subsidy going to asset holders. But 52% of our fellow Americans have no balance sheet wealth to speak of. They live off their W-2 income. So again, my preference, Jim, would be for the Federal Reserve to focus on the real side of the economy. If the economy does well, then again, everyone around this geography where we are, they'll take care of them 
themselves, and they'll be able to be in a position in their own ordinary business, figuring out what the price should be for 10-year treasuries or the S&P 500 of helping inform policymakers that would otherwise be blind to these more forward-looking price signals. You know, one of the funny things about interest rates is that uh, they have demonstrated over the course of not a few decades, but a couple of centuries, the tendency to trend in generational length cycles. In uh, the 19th century in the UK, rates essentially fell from Waterloo to about uh, 1890 or so, a long, long cycle. In this country, we have seen cycles vary between uh, 25 and 35 years, and it doesn't have to mean that they will continue to do so. There's nothing scientific about this, but to observe it, simply to watch, that has been the book. They have tended to rise and fall over long periods of time. So question, is it possible that the rise in yields that has been, in fact, underway for the past two years and some number of months, is it possible this is the beginning of a long-term bear market in bonds? It is possible. The In spite of the best efforts of fine economists for most of the last 30 or 40 years, human history is still filled with these crazy things called business cycles and financial cycles. And while I think it's the best of intentions to try to mitigate peaks and troughs, economics isn't that good. And so if we try to shave off the amplitudes of these cycles, we might actually do some underlying harm to what we used to call the micro foundations of macro. So the core elements of what makes a real economy like ours in the United States for most of the last 70 or 80 years prosper as it has. So I think it's quite dangerous to not to have a healthy respect for economic history and to understand that we can extend cycles beyond their natural life. We can even extend financial cycles and asset cycles, but they are going to find their way to a durable equilibrium. And the sooner we know that, the sooner we find that, the better versus kicking the can down the road. Hey, we are sponsored in part uh, by Zip Recruiter. Hey, you know what's not smart? Well, job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But uh, you know what is smart? Well, ZipRecruiter.com slash Grant is what's smart. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. It's a powerful matching technology that scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder the ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., uh, this rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with uh, over 1,000 reviews. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-R-A-N-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So I'm going to address you now, not as uh, Stan Druckenmiller's partner, not as um, a scholar at the Hoover Institution, nor still as a lecturer at the Stanford Business School, but rather as the almost chairman of the Fed. It came this close, Kevin. Oh, my goodness. So the question for you is, is it not possible that you have uh, declined a poisoned chalice? And let me expand a little bit. So uh, we are now living with the consequences of this great radical monetary experiment, and nothing could seem to be better now than the outcome, right? I hear people applauding all day long, but still, uh, interest rates uh, do exact their revenge at some time for the misallocation of resources. And the balance sheet is there and possibly yet inflationary. So what would you do at the Fed if you were presented with a crisis of asset prices or evidence the Fed is way behind, and yet if to, you were to raise interest rates, 
you might uh, very well do something to cause real trouble. Well, it's kind of you, Jim, to say that I even hypothetically declined such high office. It was declined for me. So I think that uh, someone else did the declining. I oh, was so, you, so you were voluntold to become a civilian again? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, I'd say unlike some of my uh, peers from my time in government, I don't really believe in this kissing and telling of of recounting stories. But, but I you, should you, say you can, you can, I are, stuck my neck out there a bit and it was uh, promptly chopped off. So I find myself back in civilian life with Stan and Stanford. Well, I would say as to the, the very laudable impulse towards discretion, please choke that back because our <laughs> listeners are, very, are themselves are very discreet. They wouldn't tell a soul if you told stories on them. Well, to, to the core of your question, let me try a second dodge of that. To the core of your question about this poison chalice, I'll say this quite honestly, and maybe you and your listeners will find this provocative. I think that Jay Powell's job is frankly a tougher job than his predecessors have had. I do not fundamentally think that the job he has is as easy, quote unquote, as the job that Cherry Yellen had. There is more debt in the corporate sector. There's more debt across governments. There's more complacency in markets. So the right decisions to have made in 2011, 2014, 2016, all those judgments are harder now. So now to be stuck with bringing me back to the dark day where this position was declined for me, if I were to get over that, I would say if I were in high office at this point, one is I'd recognize the job is not easy and had some of the beginning steps towards a more serious normalization of the balance sheet, more proper conduct of monetary policy, a better handle on real regulatory reform, then the job in front of uh, Chair Powell over the next four years, three and a half years would be easier. But again, if I were there now, my judgment is the emergency measures from the balance sheet, we would have been better off in years past to have shrunk the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, get out of this QE business, stop interfering with price signals sooner. And even though they didn't do it, that should be taken up yet again. The notion which I fear is that the Fed's balance sheet in this cycle will end at about three and a half trillion dollars, meaning quantitative tightening, which began under Chair Yellen, is pretty close to ending. And my suspicion will, will be they'll have a series of explanations for it, but on a permanent basis, they might well decide to keep a three and a half trillion dollar balance sheet forever replacing maturing treasuries with new ones. And so it won't be obvious whether private buyers and uh, the U.S. Treasury will meet in that market for some time. I'd get us out of that business. I would have these emergency measures be put aside, potentially for future use, potentially not. So I would have done that before this interest rate path. To what degree do central banks today control the market? And the reason I ask is, back in the 1990s, James Carville said, if I were reincarnated, I want to come back as a bond market because I can intimidate anybody. And if you look at Japan right now, their program is called Quantum quantitative and qualitative easings with yield curve control, which seems to imply that the bank not only can control rates, but also the shape of the entire curve, which is, is kind of a whole 180. To what degree do central banks today control the market or are they just another participant in it? To modernize uh, Jim Carville's uh, famous words from the Clinton Rubin era, if you wanted to come back today, you'd come back as a central banker. Um, the central bank has become front page news. I don't know if your listeners, Jim, still read the old fashioned newspaper, but the central bank's been on page a1 for 
virtually every day of the last 10 or 12 years. The central bank we know and the central bank which I would prefer would be on page B16 of the newspaper. But, you know, human nature suggests once you get on the front pages, going to page B16 is less appetizing. I think from a good place, from a hope to have a better set of economic outcomes, as dedicated public servants, many modern central bankers believe that the central bank should be on the front page and that, that the actions we're taking will end up with better economic economic outcomes. Again, this is a view to which I have some dissent, but they do have power over markets when they are intervening in 10-year treasuries and mortgage markets. And I should say, importantly, they also have power over markets if markets let them. And the kind of complacency that we're seeing in financial markets would be enough to make me, as a former central banker, very nervous. Volatility is highest when measures of volatility are lowest. The VIX, the move, the smooth are near career lows. So again, if I were in high office, which is a much harder job than I have now. Instead of cheerleading, I'd be expressing concerns. Again, I think it's what, what do you think the job is of the modern central bank? And my judgment is the job that gets the attention is will they raise rates in December by 25 basis points? Doesn't matter much in my view. The real job is to think hard about tail risks upside risks and tail risks, not these modal forecasts. You know, if, uh, if baseball umpires were on the front page of the sports section every week, you know something was desperately wrong with the game, right? <laughs> so uh, the fact that, uh, anyway, don't get me started, you don't get me started. You know, a uh, long time ago, in fact, 250 years or so ago, uh, David Hume, the great Scottish philosopher, said something like along these lines, said, um, no man will accept of low interest when he can have high profits, and no man will accept of low profits when he can have high interest. We have record high margins, about record high percentage of GDP, near record high returns on corporate equity, and we have depression level interest rates. The juxtaposition of depression level rates and boom time asset prices is something that people have come to take as normal. Even as they have come to take as normal the existence of prospectively a trillion dollar federal budget deficit in a time of high growth. Is that good? Uh, in a word, no. We should have learned lessons from 2007 and 8. It wasn't that long ago. It's not obvious to me we've taken the right lessons from the failure of the large bank institutions, which we feared were too big to fail going into the crisis. And I am not as confident on the regulatory front as many American policymakers that if these big institutions were to get in trouble again, we wouldn't have to do many of the same things. So that's problematic. And on monetary policy, we should have learned that the great moderation was the great mirage and the tail risks and complacency we're building. I would hate to believe that policymakers take that wonderful set of events that you just beautifully described and thought that was a permanent phenomenon, because if so, there will be a rude awakening. In June of 1964, I was there, you weren't, Kevin. In June 1964, the then head of the FOMC economic analysis staff, a man named Daniel Brill, briefs uh, Chairman William. McChesney Martin and his colleagues on the state of the economy and says, uh, Mr. Brill, he says, uh, well, capital investment is soaring in the past six months, the rate of 12% per annum. Uh, wholesale prices are actually declining and the rate of unemployment is very, very low indeed and seemingly falling. And he said, uh, quote, it's a trite thing to say, but I say this is too good to be true. That was 1964. Fast forward to Tuesday when um, Chairman Powell feels a question in Boston. Is this too good to be true? And he says, no. So uh, one wonders, do we learn anything at all over the cycles? Well, I, I, I should hope so. And um, let me just begin by saying something, which is I've known Jay Powell for a long time. He's a good and 
honorable guy. And so Andy beat me in this competition. So I don't want this to be personal. But when any economic leader at a time of a boom suggests that um, the good times will continue, there's two errors that could be made. One is that he or she believes it. The second is that regardless of whether he or she believes it, that they say it. These markets do not need, in my view, a cheerleader at this point. What these markets need is some discipline to go back to sort of first principles. So again, I didn't see the transcript of what Jay Powell said at that meeting, but I hope that the Federal Reserve writ large is focused on tail risks because the current constellation of data and news might last longer than the textbooks suggest. But the central bank's job isn't to push that to the line. It's to ask what happens when it wanders from that line. Let's look at uh, the progression, if that's the word, of economic policy and of uh, regulatory norms and of institutional structure over the past 100 years or so. So we've gone from a dollar defined as a weight of something tangible and precious as the gold standard. We have gone from a regime in which interest rates, even at the short end, uh, were discovered and not administered. And we have gone from a regime in which the shareholders of a nationally chartered bank were responsible for the solvency of their institutions. And if they were insolvent, they would get a capital call. We have gone from that to a regime in which some banks are deemed too big to fail and the government, in effect, um, is the uh, backstopping shareholder. And we've gone to a regime in which the currencies are collateralized by nothing and could be materialized with the press of a key. Or in fact, for all I know, Alexa might do it voice-wise. You know, and with deposit insurance, like we, so we have to a degree socialized credit risk. We have dematerialized money, and we have uh, had a party in credit. So all this is 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 a is a wind up, Kevin, to the question of is not the accumulation of these changes setting us up for a time in which there is a much bigger crisis? a much bigger outpouring of intervention, a much bigger exercise in radical experimentation. So we've never run this experiment of a booming economy and negative real rates in the U.S. Um, there might be good reasons why we haven't run it, but we haven't run it. So none of us, myself included, can't perfectly predict in a crystal ball what's going to happen. But it should certainly give us some pause. The thing to which the U.S. is still relying, and the world is, is the dollar. The dollar does have that special status. And so among all the things that you mentioned, imagine if we had policies that didn't treat the dollar like the world's reserve currency and the the, the unit of account in which 84% of, I think, everything traded in the world is invoiced in dollars. If we threaten that, if people think that U.S. policy is in the business of devaluation rather than a stable dollar policy or a strong dollar policy or any number of things, then the world will look elsewhere for that unit of account for that store of value. And that certainly raises real questions. To your big question, which is what are we setting ourselves up for? You know, none of us know. And again, I'd say this hasn't been a 10-year experiment. This has been a 12-month experiment. The U.S. economy has only really been booming since last spring. The economy that preceded this, what Dr. Summers called um, secular stagnation, which I roughly translate into a view that the U.S. economy is only capable of one and a half or two percent 
percent growth. I don't believe that. The kind of growth we've had in the last 12 months is real. The economy today is booming. Economic growth today is as fast as it's been since 2004. And if these trends continue, especially on the business CapEx side, we could say in a couple of quarters, this is the strongest economy since 1999. So this experiment of a booming U.S. economy, pretty good global economic growth, negative real rates, and extraordinary balance sheet is a new experiment. And like you, I think we have to hold out concern that if we get hit with a shock, an exogenous shock, maybe an overseas shock more likely, tell us again what we'll do to respond if the real economy gets hit. I would just end by saying, I hope it's not going back to what we trotted out in 2008, because what worked then might work uh, considerably less well in 2018 or 2019. Kevin, uh, not to pry, but uh, you are really now not in the business of running monetary policy, as regrettable as that fact might be, but you're <laughs> rather in the business of buying low and selling high, or as the case may be, selling high and buying low. So what are you guys uh, doing? So, you and Stan. Yeah, so, so Stan is the greatest investor of my lifetime, and I wish I could tell you that all of his gifts have uh, found their way to me, but some of these things are gifts, so they're not as easily uh, taught. Just generally, I would say, I'll let, let him speak to these are his assets. We have may, no outside money. May I interrupt uh, only to say that uh, we can ask Stan himself, who will be making appearance. This is an advertisement now at the Grants Interest Rate Observer Fall Conference on October 9th at the Plaza Hotel. He'll be on at approximately 11 o'clock in the morning. <coughs> and uh, did I ram that in there? Yes, you did. I thought it was quite a good advertisement. Yes. And, um, and over lunch, you encouraged me to attend, so I will get the latest of my Stan Druck and Miller lessons from the Plaza Hotel and uh, would be happy to answer questions that might be in response to this. But I would just say generally, when markets are are this complacent and you see a trend that could be developing on yields, you're pretty open-minded on what the outcomes are. You don't say, oh, this move in yields is fleeting and we'll go back down to yields of last week, last month, or last year. I'll speak for myself and say, you're open-minded that gravity might work. You're open-minded that yields could move higher, and I'll just give you my judgment. If we see the kind of movements in yields at a pace that we've seen over the last couple of days, my guess is risk assets aren't going to like it so much, and it will require maybe demand of, of modern central bankers to take heed. This happened in 2016. You'll recall at the beginning of that year, I think the first month or so, yeah. the stock market fell 11%. The Federal Reserve, through its famous dots, said before this episode that they would be raising rates three or four times that year. Ended up they didn't raise them at all. So we'll need to watch the central bank and see how responsive they are to what I would say natural uh, yeah. movements in asset prices. One, one final thing, Kevin, if I may, and that is... Um, the Fed's sense of responsibility for the um, the current positioning of American investors across the uh, spectrum of investment assets. Chairman Bernanke virtually invited everyone to get Long and Russell and other such things uh, many years ago, and many people have done exactly that. Institutions have no consciences, which I suppose is the way of the world, but does the institutional Fed have any sense of responsibility for the outcome of investment decisions for which it has been in some part responsible. So my former colleagues, virtually all those with whom I worked, are truly dedicated public servants. So their intent is in the right place. Their analysis is refined. But I fear that the kind of extraordinary things we did in the crisis where we purposely interfered in these markets, we purposely pushed people to take risk they didn't otherwise want to do in 2008 as when we were in that regime. I hope that that tendency isn't still there during the boom. I hope that the focus 
focus is on the real side of the real economy rather than worried about what happens if the stock market falls 10% or bond yields move up 50 or 75 basis points. That ought not be their focus. And again, I'm a has-been retiree. I haven't been there in seven, half or eight years. So the institution will need to find its own ground in that. I'll just say one other point, um, Jim. Institutions are led, led in this case by a chair, by a board of governors. And it's up to uh, Chair Powell and his new colleagues to set the tone, to set priorities. And the institution that I know has a lot of strengths and weaknesses. One, which is a bit of a remnant probably from prior generation, is it's reasonably hierarchical. So if the new leaders at the Federal Reserve say we really ought not be focused on pushing investors into asset classes they wouldn't otherwise be, push them outside of their natural habitat, then a the dedicated, brilliant group of, of economists and others will take that message message and incorporate in their thinking. But that's a question of, of the institutional leadership and what their priorities and preferences are. Professor Warsh, Governor Warsh, Investor Warsh, uh, thank you for being with us. It has been merely a delight. And I uh, thank uh, you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. Until next time. Thank you, Jim.